0: this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20 and you probably uh, recognize this passage as the great commission passage the title of my sermon this morning is all in and we're in a sermon series uh, entitled all in where we're talking about what it means to be all in as the bible describes it in our christian faith not necessarily how church dictates it Um, or how a pastor dictates it, but how God's Word describes what it looks like to be all in as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at the strategy that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 28, and we'll unpack that as we go. This past week, I was watching a video from a pastor named Francis Chan. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a pastor uh, out on the West Coast, and he was talking about uh, the children's game Simon Says. Anybody remember Simon Says? Everybody remembers Simon Says. Everybody plays Simon Says because it doesn't cost anything. You don't have, have to have any props. And it can hold a kid's attention for at least three minutes in the doctor's office while you're waiting to see the doctor. Uh, and so we all kind of remember that game. But he says, we all played Simon Says, and the rules are simple. If Simon says it, then you do it. And if you do what Simon says, then you win the game. That's how you win the game is you Do what Simon tells you to do. He says, but it's so weird how in the church, Jesus says, is a totally different game. I'm just going to be honest here. I totally agree with Chan. He says, if Jesus says something, you don't necessarily have to do it. At least that's our attitude and our approach. You just have to memorize it. And study it and get together and talk about it all the time without actually doing what Jesus says. He says it doesn't make any sense. That's not the way Jesus gave commands and teaching in Scripture. He says, I tell my 14-year-old daughter, Rachel. He says, hey, Rach, go clean your room. I tell her to go do that. There's no discussion. There's no argument. You know, I expect her to do what I say. She doesn't come back in two hours and say, hey, Dad, I memorized what you said. And I can say it in the Greek and we're going to invite all my friends over together, and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I did what you told me to do. He says it doesn't work like that. When I tell her to go clean your room, I expect you to go clean your room. And says, so why do we think we're going to come before the judge one day and stand in front of God who's given us this commission for every disciple of Jesus and try to convince him of how much we know, how much we memorize? He said it's not going to work. It's simple. It's in black and white. And if you have a Bible like mine, it's in red. So it's kind of hard to miss what Jesus said and what He told us to do. We just have to do it. But see, what we need to figure out is, what is it that Jesus told us to invest our lives in? We only get one trip around this, this world, right? We have one life to live till will soon be passed. Only what's done for who? Christ. Will last. And I want to say to you this morning, there's a lot of good things that we can spend our lives and our time on. Good things. But some of those good things can get in the way of God things. And we need to move some of those good things out of the way so that we can see what God has called us to do in His Word. So this morning, I want to look at this text together and discover what it is that Jesus has commanded us if we are redeemed, blood-bought disciples of Jesus Christ... And then after we do that, I want us to unpack some misconceptions and myths and objections that I believe prevent people who claim Jesus to be their Savior from actually doing what Jesus said. And we've turned it into something in a lot of ways that it was never meant to be. So up front, I want to say this this morning. My goal is not to offend anyone in this room. If the gospel offends you, if something about this text in the Great Commission offends you, that's between you and the Lord. I'm going to do my very best to present to you what this says in in all the faithfulness and the prayer that I I, I could muster this past week. I've prayed for God to give me a spirit of gentleness and a sweetness and a winsomeness so that you hear it in the right way. I, I don't want anyone to be... Uh, unnecessarily offended, and sometimes we can do that to each other, and we need to, to forgive you know, as, as we need to there. But my, my purpose this morning is to clarify what Jesus has told us to do. I want us to clarify from this text what our strategy is that God has told us to do in this Great Commission, and then I have been asking God all week to give us the courage and the discernment to look at our lives honestly and, and see where we need to take the next step in our Christian faith. And so I hope you'll understand that this morning. I've prayed for that. Our prayer team has prayed for that throughout this week. So let's begin first by looking at Jesus' strategy for reaching the world. Let's turn to the text together, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but, I love this, some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, because of his authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there's a lot in this passage, and actually some of you may remember this. I actually preached this at my um, service that I preached two years ago under the call to to potentially be the pastor uh, here at Pleasant Gardens. This morning, i want to zero in on looking at Jesus' strategy in this Great Commission. And it's found mostly in verse 19. In verse 19, Jesus tells His disciples, His followers of Christ, not unbelievers, but His disciples to do one thing. He tells them to make disciples. In this Great Commission, there's only one command. It looks like about three or four commands total. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it shows up as one imperative verb in verse 19. And what that means is this. Jesus is not leaving room for discussion. This is not an open-ended Bible study where it's like, what does that mean to you? And here's what this means to me. And here, it's not that. Jesus is giving one imperative command because of his supreme authority over all of life. He says, because I'm the boss, I'm telling you what you're supposed to give your life to, and it's to making disciples. Someone has called this passage, The Great Suggestion. Instead of the great commission. Because sometimes that's how we treat it. We treat it like the great option or the great suggestion. But it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. And disciple making, please hear me, is not another Sunday night study for us to get together and gather around and talk about what it might look like if we made disciples. Listen, if the first disciples had have done that, we wouldn't be here. It's very simple. They believed what Jesus said. That His authority gave them the power and the presence to do this. And so they got serious about making disciples. And why do you sit where you sit today? Because the gospel spread to the ends of the earth like Acts chapter 1 tells us. And so disciple making is the core component of Jesus' strategy. And please hear me. If you're in this room this morning and you profess... With your mouth and your heart to be a believer of Jesus Christ. You would say that his blood has washed my sins away. And his cross gave me eternal life. And his resurrection, the keys over death. If you would agree with those things, then you need to understand this. This expectation is laid at your feet. This expectation is laid at your feet if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's start by defining this word disciple. Did you know the word disciple shows up 269 times in the New Testament? 269 times. You know how many times Christian shows up? Three. And it started out as a derogatory term where they were making fun of the little Christs. that were following Jesus. So the number one word used to talk about people that were worshiping Jesus was disciple. Well, what does it mean? Its basic meaning is a student or a learner, and some people have kind of pushed that out aside of those bounds just a little bit to include the word apprentice. So a student, or a learner, or an apprentice. So someone says, what is a disciple? It's a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus who wants to see other people make, become lifelong followers and learners of Jesus. Now, I love the, the apprentice picture because what it means is a younger, more inexperienced person comes alongside someone else who's gifted in a certain area, and they watch them model how to do their trade, and they learn how to make disciples at the feet of a person who is making disciples. That's how Jesus did it. He called people to himself, and he said, Watch me, eat with me, learn from me, spend time with me, and then he sent them out. It's a together relationship kind of thing. We can't just separate it out into isolated groups. Now, surrounding that one command are three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. These are not the primary commands of this the Greek construct of this verse. Make disciples is the one thing that Jesus is telling them to do. And I picture like an umbrella with spokes. The going and baptizing and teaching are the the spokes of the umbrella, but the overarching command is to make disciples. And so all three of these other things, going to lost people baptizing saved people, and teaching believers, all three of those have to be present if we're going to be Great Commission Christians. They have to be present if this is going to be a Great Commission church. Do you know where we stop sometimes? We stop after the first two. We'll go on a mission trip, you know, and that's exciting. We'll go to our community and do a a community blitz, or we'll go to the school next door and do something, you know, to, to minister to people. And if someone gets saved, or they walk an aisle here... Uh, then we're celebrating and we baptize them. But what about the teaching aspect? If this is given to every follower of Christ, do you understand the implication of that? That every person in this room that says, I worship Jesus as my Lord and Savior, is called to teach others. You don't have to have the gift of teaching uh, to do this. That, the gift of teaching is reserved for teaching in the, the organized body of the church. But every person who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior is called to pass on what they have been given to someone else. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy 2.2? 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who can teach others also. Do you know where we stop with this today in the way that we approach Christianity? What you have heard from me. We take what we have heard from one person up front, whether it's Howard or me or Nathan or someone in your Sunday school, and, and then we just absorb and we receive. And we are bad not to take what we are, are learning and have been given and invested into the lives of someone else. We must be doing all three of these things. Well, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Why does he say therefore? Because verse 18 contains the authority aspect of this great commission. Because he has all authority, he says, I can call the shots in your life. I'm the boss. And because I'm the boss, you're to go and give your lives to this mission of making disciples. Jesus says, go. Now that scares a lot of people. Because we read this and we think, go? What do you mean go? Like Go where? Well, the good thing is Jesus didn't say it like that. In the Greek, it actually translates out to as you go, wherever you go. And so you start where you are right now in your homes, in your neighborhoods, at your job, in your communities, with the parents of the kids on the ball team, and make disciples as you go, wherever you go. You know the first place this should begin, dads and moms and grandparents in this room? In our homes. This has to start in our homes. This is not something that we just bring children to a place one time a week or even two times a week or even three times a week if you're really committed to the schedule of church and then you just hope that your Sunday school teacher is going to put everything in there or the pastor is going to get it all in there. How many more hours do moms and dads spend with children and grandchildren than a pastor or a youth pastor ever will? The primary disciple-making Role belongs in the hands of dad and mom. And I put dad first because that's the way God designed it in the family. Now other circumstances obviously don't allow that. But dad and mom sometimes, we miss this. I went to a funeral about three or four weeks back, I guess. And it was for Dr. Bob Smith, Rebecca Shuford's father. And only on one other occasion have I ever walked away from a funeral forgetting that it was a funeral. I was there worshiping. And I was so moved by what this man had given his life to. I heard, him talk, I heard people stand up and talk about they were co-workers, uh, nurses. Or they were people that ministered alongside Dr. Bob in the prison ministry. And everybody kept standing up and saying, he pointed me to Christ. And he led so and so to Christ. And he led that Bible study for the inmates. And he reached out to his neighbors and he prayed. And I was just like, this guy got it. Look at this picture behind me. Pull this picture up if you don't mind. That's Dr. Bob right there, and it's been cropped just a little bit, just so we could put it on the screen. But that's Dr. Bob, what's, what's open on his lap right there? The Word of God. And look what's gathered around his feet right there, children. And look who's sitting right by his side, his faithful wife. What would change in our churches? What would change in our communities? Leave that picture up for a moment. What would change in our schools? What would change in 20 years when these kids down front are working jobs and some of you are retiring? What would change if daddies understood, "This is my first congregation. This is my little flock. I heard David Jeremiah talking about it on TV this morning. He said, "My family are behind the Lord. His family is his first place of ministry." We have to get this. We have to grab a hold of this. And that's where this is saying. As you go doesn't mean skip over your family and go to the nations on a plane. Start with the little ones right around your feet. And grandparents, if you look at the way you raise your kids and you say, Man, I missed it with this kid or that kid or all my kids. Do you have grandparents or grandchildren? Do you have little children sitting around you? You can disciple them in the way you talk to them in this place when you see them once, twice, three times a week. We are all called to disciple one another, but it has to start in the home. Do you know the home is under attack? Do I need to preach on that? I probably need to. But do you know that? This has to be what we're about as Christian people. Some of you work with children in this room for your careers, and you could tell me story after story after story of absent dads and absent moms and children that wound up in foster care, and they needed someone to... Go to them with the gospel. That's the first aspect. But second, we're told to baptize them. This is the announcement part of being a disciple. This is when you enter into these waters, that is your public profession. That is your public, because I can make a profession and receive Jesus Christ privately in my room, but when I come before you as a church and I'm baptized, that is my public profession that I am in now, breaking with my old pattern, breaking with my old sin, and saying, I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I belong to Him. You know what's happened to baptism in the South? It's turned into a rite of passage. I heard a pastor say that the other day. It's turned into a rite of passage that when a kid gets six or eight or ten, we need to hurry up and rush them into those waters. No, what we need to hurry up and do is make disciples. And the baptizing part comes after that. But we have to be pointing people toward Jesus Christ. The baptism part is the symbol of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I used to tell kids this all the time. I said, listen, when I take you and lay you under that water, if I hold you under there, what's going to happen? And they would all look at me like that. Because they knew what was going to happen. And I said, don't worry, I'm not going to do it. I said, but what would happen? I would die. And I'd say, that's right. I said, but I'm going to raise you up. I said, watch my hands. I said, what happened with Jesus? He was laid in the grave and God did what? Raised him up. And I can see for those kids the light bulb going on of baptism is a picture of Jesus dying, being laid, and then the Father raising him to new life. This is not a southern rite of passage. This is a a powerful symbol of identity with Jesus Christ. It says, I don't belong to the world anymore. So let me toss one more thing out for you to consider this morning. If you have been baptized in front of the church together with God's people assembled, you know what you're saying? You're saying to the people out here, hold me accountable. Amen? That's exactly what you're saying. Hold me accountable. You see me getting off course? You better bring me back. That's what God's people are here for. To disciple one another. To do spiritual good in the lives of the people in this room, in your Sunday school classes, and with the groups that you serve in this church. So that we all grow toward maturity in Christ. Third, we're told to do what? To teach. This is every single believer is called to teach others how to obey Christ's command. I love what I read this past week. Somebody said, there are no footnotes in the Great Commission that excuse certain individuals from this assignment. Isn't that good? There's no small print down here that says, I'm this age, so I don't have to make disciples anymore. Or I'm too young, so I don't have to make disciples anymore. Or I don't really have a a position in the church. Or I'm not very important because I'm not on some particular committee. No, 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 no. Jesus gave this to all followers to make disciples. So when we talk about making disciples, listen to me. We're talking about reproduction, okay? Let me, let me talk about reproduction. You ever seen a family tree where mom or dad had 10 or 11 kids? We don't see that a whole lot anymore, right? When mom or dad had 10 or 11 kids. They have a bird corner back there, I think, right? Isn't that bird corner? 10 or 11 kids. Do you know what happens after 10 or 11 kids? Grandparents stop buying Christmas presents for grand youngins, right? You just going to run you out of house and home. But think about that image of having 10 or 11 kids around you at Christmas time. Think about how much joy is in that place when there's a house full of people and you're gathered together and you're celebrating the birth of the savior as a family together. Do you know what the father in heaven wants to see one day in heaven? A house full of people. A house full of people. Joyously worshipping together. Disciples, listen to me, from where? Not just from Pleasant Gardens community or from North Carolina. But from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue, every ethnicity. When we get there, you're not going to find a sign that says, P.G. Baptist, you worship over here. Or Nairobi Baptist Church in Kenya, you worship over here. We're all gonna be in one big place together like Christmas time as a family worshiping and celebrating Jesus our King. You say, how do you know? Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. All the what? All the nations. All the ethnicities is what that means. And they shall glorify your name. It's going to happen. How do I know that? Go to Revelation chapter 7. John says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. All tribes, peoples, languages were standing before the throne. So Revelation 7 says that Psalm 86 is going to happen. So here's the question. Are you going to obediently get involved in what God is doing in this world? Are you going to choose to say, yes, I want to make disciples and I want to give my life to the very best thing I can? Are you going to try to stand before Him and explain... Why you gave your life to lesser things. How tragic. To have our attention, in church even, diverted from the best thing. How tragic for a church. God's chosen vehicle to take the gospel to the nations. How tragic for a church to get sidetracked. And begin just meeting people's temporal needs. But never telling them about the Lord. We studied in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus taught and He proclaimed and He healed. He did all those things. It was a total person ministry. He gave His time and His energy and His love and His resources to it. And He said no to lesser things. To give His time and His life to the best thing. On Monday night. I was cheering for the Clemson Tigers. First time in my life. But I was cheering hard. I stayed up till after the interviews in the postgame watching Dabo Swinney. It was incredible. And I learned later this week that the guy that caught the touchdown pass, Hunter Renfro, to give you some perspective, I'm 5'7", 160. He's 5'9", 180. Not much bigger than me. Now, he's a whole lot stronger and faster than me. But he turned down a scholarship to play football here at Appalachian State University. You know why? Because he said, I want to have a chance to play for a team that's going to win a national title. You know how many touchdowns he's had in national title games in the last two years? Four. Hunter Renfro sacrificed something good so he could pursue something great. Do you hear me? Hunter Renfro said no to something that was good. It was going to bless him. He even sacrificed for that and walked on to Clemson's team and ended up catching the national championship pass. Let me ask you a question very practically. If you're giving the best of your life, time, talent, treasure, resources, and energy... To lesser things, what do you need to say no, no to and let go of so you can pursue this command that Jesus has given you? What do you need to lay aside so that you can do what He's saying? Disciples who make disciples. So what does this not mean? Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Please hear me on this. We're talking about disciples. Here's what this does not mean. We're not talking about Jesus pursued one-time deciders or religious converts who pray a prayer and then go back to life as usual. We're not talking about people that walk an aisle, sign a card, mouth a prayer with somebody, maybe because something tragic's going on, and then on Monday go back to life as usual. That is not a disciple, based on what the New Testament says. It's not. Jesus wasn't after one time deciders. Jesus wasn't after even converts. The Pharisees were seeking converts. They wanted people to come to themselves and stay with them. Jesus wanted people to come to him so he could train them and send them out. How do we know that? Because when he died, he had a handful of people to show for it. But where we sit today, the gospel's gone to the ends of the earth. We're talking about spiritual multiplication that went way past where Jesus lived and the paths he walked. Do you know where most of our evangelism focuses today? On getting people to make decisions. We aim at getting people to make decisions. And we consider gospel opportunities and evangelistic opportunities failures if somebody doesn't check a box. Or if we don't see people flood down these aisles and profess faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if we're doing our job as disciples, making disciples outside of these walls by evangelizing. We have no clue how many people are professing faith in Jesus Christ because of your efforts. We don't. We shouldn't focus on making decisions. They focused on making disciples. Here's why. Jesus called us to be and make disciples, not deciders. If the Great Commission just requires only a decision but no following, then the Great Commission is about making more deciders, not disciples. If Jesus only wanted to get people to make decisions, why did He say, teach them to obey? He said, if you love me, you will do what? Obey My commands. For some of you this morning, when I'm talking about your life being about disciple making, this is a major paradigm shift. And for some of you, I hope and pray that it's even a little unsettling. Because you're like, what does that mean for me? With whatever time I have left, 8 years or 80 years, I'm supposed to make disciples. What exactly does that mean? Let me tell you what it's moving us away from. If we understand our goal as a church... To make disciples, it moves us away from a religious routine. It moves us away from a Sunday go to meet and mindset like we see in Andy Griffith, where they sleep through the sermon and walk out, and Barney says, Good sermon. What do you preach on? Sin. It moves us away from that. It's not about that anymore. It's about a new lifestyle that is radically anchored in Jesus' truth, values, and commands. Let me ask you a question Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? That may move you away from everything you're doing right now in your Christian walk. That may unsettle the ways that you've looked at things for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. If we're called to make disciples. Did you notice that what Jesus said didn't have anything to do with buildings or bodies or budgets? Did you notice that? Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Who did he put in charge of the money bag? Did he have any flashy logos or jump drives and nice little cups that he gave to people? No, those things are fine. Those things are fine. They can be used as a ministry tool. Jesus just simply called people to come to him. And he equipped them. And then he said, now, you go out. We're not just going to gather together all the time. One of my burdens that I want to see take place in every church, everywhere... Is that we don't just have a gather together mindset. It's wonderful to gather together. It's great to get together. This is one of my favorite times of the week. Is looking out and seeing all of your faces. And some of you I see throughout the week at appointments and visits and meetings and things. I love getting together. But what happens to the church that gathers and never scatters? It's not a great commission church. The church has to gather to get equipped to scatter. To go out and take the gospel to people. See them respond train them up, and then send them out. That's what Jesus did. You think, wait a minute, that's way too simple. That'll never work. Billy Graham sure thinks it will. Listen to what Billy Graham said. If the church followed this pattern, we could reach the entire world in one generation. He says, mass crusades in which I believe and I've committed my life to these will never accomplish the Great Commission. One-on-one relationships will. Making disciples is not a a big program. It's not a class. It's not a study. It's getting it down in here and realizing I've been commissioned by the king who has all authority. And my life is now rerouted and rearranged around this one mission. Everything else is subservient to that. So with a few minutes that we have left, I want to do something. I want you to hang with me for this. I I want to... ask the question, why isn't this taking place in churches today? Just generally speaking, why isn't this taking place in churches today? Because if every one of us in here, let's say 200, if we all made one disciple next year, we would have 400 people in this place next year in one year. Just one. Just one disciple in a year. And if that happened the next year from those 400 people, we'd have to build a new building or go to two or three services, we would run out of space quickly. So why is it not happening? Let me give you some reasons. Quickly, And then I'm going to give you an action step, because some of these may land in your lap and you say, well, what do I do now? Let's move through these quickly. Number one, we don't understand the Great Commission. We don't really understand what Jesus told us to do. We've turned church life and Christian life into church attendance, being morally good and putting a little bit in the plate, and I'm okay. But Jesus made it clear that His priority was relational discipleship. Take what you learn and trust it to someone else. That means it doesn't stop with you. The gospel came to you. Please hear me. That's so good. This, This is not my thought. This is somebody else's. The gospel came to you because it's on the way to somebody else. Has it stopped with you? Don't run past that question because it makes you uncomfortable. The gospel came to you, and if you responded in faith to Jesus Christ, it did because it's supposed to be going to someone else. If it stopped with you, then we need to figure out why. So here's what I want to recommend. There's, a, a, I think, a picture of a book, Robbie Gallaty's book called Growing Up. Do we have that picture? Not that one. You got another one? Not that one. That's a good one, too. Not that one. That's a good one, too. We don't have it? Okay. Okay, there's a book called Growing Up by Robbie Gallaty. Write that down. Growing Up, Robbie Gallaty. Here's what I recommend you do. It is a wonderful work on what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. Write it down. Find another Christian. Read it together. Talk about it, but don't stop there. Then go out and make disciples. Do that. Gain an understanding of what the Great Commission is. The second reason we don't make disciples is we've never been discipled ourselves. In that book, Galilee says, it's nearly impossible to lead somebody else on a journey you've never been on yourself. It's like the blind leading the blind. So what happens? We get frozen and paralyzed in the pews because we say, I don't know what to do. I know I'm supposed to make disciples and all these pastors and conferences and all. Tell me to do it, but I don't know what to do. So here's your action step. Begin praying right now. God, I need someone to equip me. I need someone to come along and to mentor me and disciple me. Ask God to put that person in your life and then look around this room. It starts in your local church. Look around this room and find someone that's been walking with the Lord longer than you and say, can we spend a few months together and you equip me on how I can go out and reach somebody else with the gospel and teach them the message of Christ. Ask God to fill that role in your life. Third, we love programs more than we love relationships, honestly. We love programs more than we love relationships. You know why? Because a program is structured. It's easy to maintain. It starts at five and it ends at six sharp. A program doesn't go home with you and it will not call you in the middle of the night. And you know what else? We love to control it. We can control programs. Do we have control problems in churches? Let's just let's all nod together. Yes, we sometimes do. All of us sometimes do. I don't like it right now. It's too hot to me in here. Okay. It's too hot, but I'm going to keep preaching, okay? It's warm. Thank you, Brenda. But it's okay, because you know what? The the air temperature in here is not about me. If I walk out of here sweaty, that's okay, because we're gathering around the Word. If you walk in here and say, well, I didn't really like that song. Well, was it about Jesus? Yeah, that's good enough, okay? Okay, where did Jesus spend his time, programs or relationships? Relationships. Howard Hendricks, professor from Dallas, he says every Christian, this is your action step, every Christian ought to have three relationships, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. The Paul is the more mature believer pouring into you. The Barnabas is the person that iron sharpening iron comes alongside you. You mutually encourage. The Timothy is who you pour into. Who are your three? If you can't answer that question, you need to fill those voids in your life. Number two, you know what you can do? Plug into a Sunday school class. If this hour right here is the only time that you see people and they see you in this church, then you're probably not valuing relationships like the Bible says. We need to be together to grow together. Number four, we've turned church into come and see instead of go and tell. We've turned church into an event that people come and see and they watch things happen instead of gather so we can scatter. Now, there's nothing wrong with inviting people to worship. I try to invite people to worship all the time, but that's not where it stops. That's not the end of the line on the train. Jesus never said invite them to a place. He said take them on a journey. So invite them to church with you. Sit with them. Take them to lunch afterward and talk about what did you hear? What did you think? Where are you at in your spiritual journey? Use church as a way to to springboard those conversations. Number five. Believers don't hang out with non-Christians because they don't know many. I left that scratched out in my notes on purpose. That's not true. We know non-Christians. We know lost people. They're our neighbors. They're the ones that cut our hair. They're the ones that change our oil. They're the ones we stand beside dads on the fence as we watch our boys play games and we tell stories of our former glories on the ball field. We know non-believers. We're just not intentional about hanging out with them. I went to the Y and played basketball with some guys that I'm certain are Unbelievers. Listening and watching their lives as they played. And I said to Scott, he's here today, I said to Scott, this is hard. Like being around this kind of language and these attitudes and the things they say. And I said, this is hard. He said, that's why most Christians never do it. It's hard. We get accustomed to the way we talk to each other in here. We have a special jargon that if a lost person walked in here, they may not even understand some of what's said. But how intentional are we about being with lost people in our community? That's the go element. That we're going with the gospel to tell people. So here's your action step. As you go this week, use wherever you're going. If you're going to get your oil changed in your car, strike up a conversation with the guy who works on your car. See where he's at in his spiritual journey. When somebody's cutting your hair, just talk to them. and you ain't going nowhere for ten minutes, or depending on how much hair you have. Two minutes. But maybe you need to find some new places to shop. Maybe you need to find some new places to to get your hair done or to to, uh, pick out your your books or to take your kids to play at different playgrounds so you can build relationships with lost people. Maybe we're just not moving outside our bubble enough. The next one is is, is a tough one. I want you to hear me here. There's a mindset that says disciple making is for the paid people. It's for the paid people. Someone called this the holy man myth. That the pastor or the paid staff should be the ones doing the ministry. That's what we pay them for. That's what they went to school for. That's their job. But listen to me please. Because this is how I approach ministry. Because I believe I can support this from Ephesians 4. This is one of the most unbiblical, church crippling, Catholic ideas that people believe today. The Catholic church invests authority in a position over above everyone else. And that's not what we see. The New Testament says every believer is a minister. So if you think you have to be a pastor or a deacon or a chairperson of a committee to serve here, let me just say that is horrifically unbiblical. And if we're perpetuating that idea, church, we need to stop. Committees are useful, but they're not ultimate. I'm a congregant just like all of you. There's a congregational rule that the New Testament teaches. I'm no monarch. The deacon chair is no monarch. We are all one body together. We make decisions together, and God elects the pastor and the deacons, or we elect the pastor and the deacons to serve together. But it's not just for the paid people, it's not about your position in the church, it's about your position in Christ. You know what that kind of thinking does? It overburdens pastors. It raises up positions like deacon to places that the New Testament never puts them and it underutilizes the spiritual gifts of all of you in this pew in these pews. If you're saved by the blood of Christ listen to me, you are not saved to sit until Jesus comes back. You were saved to serve. Ephesians 4:12 says this, it's the job of the pastor teacher along with other positions to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit could have said, It's the pastor's job to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you so that you feel uh, equipped and prepared to go out and trained to go out and to lead other people to Christ and to train them up so that the mission goes on. So, what's the action step? Get off the sidelines, get in the game. Don't wait for somebody to call you in October from a nominating committee. If you think, Man, I, I, need, I, I want to use my spiritual gift, I want to sing in the choir. Or I want to help serve somewhere. Just go and find somebody and get plugged in. The committee system is useful. It's wonderful. It's helpful. But don't wait for 10 months until somebody calls you to serve. That's not in the scripture. We can use that system. But we don't find that in the scripture. Number seven. People say, I'm not ready or qualified. I'm too introverted. I don't know enough of the Bible. I'm just not ready. Does the New Testament ever say you have to be an extrovert? Does the New Testament say you have to have impeccable carpentry skills? I I sure hope not, because I'm dead in the water. Does it say you have to have a seminary degree to make disciples? No, you just need Jesus' power and His presence to get started. If you say, well, I would love to make disciples, but I don't know how to teach somebody the basic elements of the faith. Robbie, pull up that book you did the first one, The Way. Great resource right here, and I've got several of these here today. I'd be glad to give this to you, but last time I gave these to folks... I'm afraid that what happened is it became a personal Bible study. And it was like, oh, this is what I'm going to use at home with me and my time. No. This is what you use to grab somebody else and say, hey, let's walk through this together and get you prepared to go out and and spread the word. Come see me if you're interested. Two more real quick. It's not a priority. Other things get the best in most of our time. And so we settle for lesser things like working out, hobbies, TV watching, eating, golf, sports, Kids' weekend sports and travel sports, all those things are fine. But if they come before following Jesus and leading other people to do the same, then why is your priority list out of order? Why are your your loves out of order? You need to reorder your loves if that's where you are. So you know what you need to do? Make a log sheet of your time on a normal week. And be ruthlessly honest about how you're spending your week. And determine what's getting first place. And then repent of it. And find somebody in here to hold you accountable. And say, hey, ask me how I spent my time this week. Ask me if I spent too much time on that hobby. Or if I watched too much TV. That's what the church is for. For relationships. And then number nine. Last one. Serving people and discipling people are not necessarily the same thing. Serving people and discipling people are not always the same thing. They can happen together together. But sometimes we serve people and we think we're fulfilling the Great Commission, but we never told them about Jesus. That's something the YMCA can do. The church is the one mission that's called to tell people about the life-changing power of Jesus Christ so that they can know Him for themselves. These things are avenues for sharing the gospel. So we need to make sure we're meeting people's needs, but also telling them about Christ. So here is my big takeaway from my study this week, and I'm done. Jesus' command to make disciples raises the bar in my Christianity. I hope some of you this morning are feeling that same sort of holy compulsion. That we just can't keep coming back in here and going through the motions if that's what you're doing. Some of you may not be doing that. You may be making disciples like crazy. And that's awesome. That's wonderful. But I can't just settle into a prepare my sermon And come back in here and preach on Sunday. Prepare my sermon. Come back here and preach on Sunday. I don't get off the hook. You don't get off the hook. We have to go to people with the gospel. See them respond because they will respond. Baptize them. And teach them how to walk with and follow Jesus Christ. So that this multiplies throughout the earth. That's the strategy. It's tough. It's going to require some sacrifice. You're going to have to rearrange your life around it. It may hurt. But here's my question for you. That's the strategy. Are you all in? Let's pray.